0: Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. The
1: following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com.
2: Good afternoon, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education, and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now, here's your host, Mary Woods.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is your host, Mary Woods, and um, we've got a really interesting show for you today. I think that um, for many of us, we're all very familiar and um, very aware of our family histories, whether it's hypertension, diabetes, um, heart disease, and it's and it's part of our um, family heritage that we down from one generation to the next. And it's something we talk very openly about. And there are other chronic illnesses that are basically brain diseases that um, we don't always pass down the verbal history from one generation to the other, but we certainly pass down the. The vulnerability to the disease and the actual disease itself from one generation to another, and um, it 's something that most of us aren 't comfortable talking about, whether it 's our family history of depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or alcoholism or um, other substance use disorders and i and I think that um, it 's really important that we 're able to talk about these brain diseases in the same way we talk about other chronic illnesses, and our guest today is someone who has um, really um, been very forthright about the multi-generational experience that his family has had with both mental illness and substance use disorders, and our guest is Tom Davis, and Tom is the Jersey Shore editor at Patch.com. He was previously an award-winning editor and reporter in in New Jersey for the record of Bergen County, where he wrote Coping, one of the nation's only mental health columns for five years. He was named Citizen of the Year in 2007 by the American Psychiatric Association's New Jersey chapter. He also teaches journalism classes at Rutgers University and has taught a groundbreaking course on mental health issues in the media at Farley Dickinson University in New Jersey. Tom was one of six people in the nation to win the Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalism Fellowship in 2004. He's also the editor, writer, and publisher of Coping with Life blog, which deals with life, family, and mental health. He has an uh, MS degree from Columbia University, and he's written um, a really fascinating book called A Legacy of Madness, which um, he really takes us on the journey to uncover and ultimately understand the history of mental illness that led generations of his suburban American family to their demise. In the wake of his mother's death, Tom knew one thing, helplessly self-absorbed and severely obsessive-compulsive, Dee, Dee had led a tormented life. She spent years bouncing around mental health facilities, nursing homes, and assisted living facilities, but what really caused her death. And so for the next hour, we're going to be talking with Tom about um, this whole concept of uh, multigenerational mental illness and the need for us all to understand it within our own families. So welcome, Tom.
4: Thank you, Mary. Welcome.
3: Um, first of all, what made you decide to write this very um, poignant and um, revealing history of your family?
4: Well, it's been something that's been kind of in the works, I say, for maybe twenty years or so. Um, um, I've, when I first really started experiencing symptoms myself of obsessive um, compulsive disorder, as it relates to. Um, eating disorders, and uh, I felt that there had to be a story here, plus the fact that I felt that's when I really started to feel, feel unique in a way. I started to feel like uh, a man with eating disorders. I mean, there was so much of a stigma attached to certain mental illnesses, and one of them uh, was so obvious was the one that that only women can have eating disorders. So I always felt like I had some story to relate there, um, whether it was in a book or a magazine or a news story or whatever, and uh, I just remember running into... You know, people my age, people in my older me, younger me, who, who told me some of the experiences I went, through, I went through that they went through too. And you know, sometimes, sometimes I see those faces. I know it sounds kind of corny, but I see some of those faces still when I write, when I write this, when I written, when I wrote this book, when I when I done past book, I'm not doing, I see those faces, and I feel like I'm writing to them. I'm writing to those people who feel like they need some sort of, you know, reassurance that they're not alone. You know, um, so. That, that, I would say that was something that kind of um, evolved over time. didn't really actually kind of take effect. I started to do some writing in the early part of last decade, but it didn't really start taking effect until I took a graduate course at the Columbia University and got my master's degree. And um, I had a terrific professor by the name of Sam Friedman um, who actually was a teacher of a, of a book writing seminar. It's kind of like a nationally renowned book writing seminar. And some crazy amount of a uh, number of, people have gotten book book uh, book contracts out of this um, out of this seminar. Something like fifty seven I think it is. I think I'm the fifty seventh. So uh, you know, he was the one that basically helped kinda of harness the whole idea of trying to write trying to take this idea and, and make it into a long form idea, right? In a long form. So
3: um in the first part of your book you talked about um, Woody Guthrie. Right and um, and how his experience kind of triggered something for you as well. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, um,
4: a long time ago, I, uh, I mean, I'm a dirty short kid, so I, uh, you know, listening to Springsteen was always a thing, you know. Um, but I was never one who bought into the big Springsteen craze of the 80s, but what I've always preferred were his songs that were kind of the ones that were off the, off the beaten track a little bit. My favorite Springsteen album was probably Nebraska. Um, and uh, if you listen to Nebraska, you really hear a lot of Woody Guthrie. And uh, there was, he kind of came out of the live album in 1986. I guess his first live album was a big deal. And, uh, and uh, he sang This Land is Your Land on the live album. And um, I remember hearing that. And then right after that, he played couple Nebraska songs, which Nebraska, those of you who are Springsteen fans know that it's all acoustic. Um, it basically was recorded like on a tape deck or something like that in Springsteen's house. And uh, I, I just felt like I was coupling that together. And I was talking in a book about how I feel like, well, Springsteen talks a lot about like, it's more than this that puts a gun in somebody's hand to kill somebody. It's more than this that causes somebody to rob somebody. It's more than this that causes maybe somebody to commit a crime sometimes. And, And I felt like there was an attachment there between, you know, Springsteen and what he was writing about and what Woody Guthrie was writing about and this land is your land. And on that that album, Springsteen talks about how that was an answer, or he says an answer, to uh, God Bless America, you know. So I kind of appreciate that kind of feeling from both of them that, you know, they felt like they had... A perspective on America that they want to provide, you know, that wasn't just some kind of chest something perspective that everybody thought painting was about. Was actually not. So I felt, and then, you know, as as I, over time, I mean, I felt really, just listening to both of their music, I felt like a lot more empathy and sympathy toward people who were downtrodden, you know. Um, and I even heard Springsteen Singers when joined. <laughs> so uh, when I saw that Woody Guthrie at Greystone, I I, I had not known at the time that he was actually, I think, I think I did actually know a little bit about his history at Greystone, but I didn't really know it. And when I saw him there and I saw the picture of him, the famous picture of him with Bob Dylan, I, uh, I, um, was really taken by that, you know, especially in the, it was just what, a couple months after my mother died. And, and, uh, I always felt some sort of a connection there. And it was really, I was actually really kind of a spark. It was kind of like a, Basically, they stay kind of that harmonic version where everything just kind of comes together, and you suddenly hear the words of Got um, Guthrie louder, and you hear the words of Springsteen louder, and you start to think of your mother and how your own your mother could have been a subject of their songs, you know, and, uh, and, and it felt like, you know, they were trying to provide a voice to people who didn't have one, so maybe it was time for me to provide a voice to people who didn't have one.
3: Well, I think that, um, you know, music has always been a very powerful way to communicate across the masses. And, um, you know, the, the whole concept of, of mental illness is um, something that, you know, we don't talk about, let alone write music about. So, um, yeah. you know, it's it's really, I think it's so important that we begin to put a voice to it.
4: Exactly. And I feel, I feel like... Uh... I feel. I feel like it's something that there is a voice that's been put to it. But it's been a voice of stigma. It's been a voice of, um, you know. I often. I, often, I mean, we, we talked about the course I taught at Fairleigh Dickinson, um, and uh, that course was you know, kind of a kind of an offshoot of that whole effort too—to write about it, to get word out about it. And I was actually, as, as I started to read textbooks about it, and. um, um and I started, to, I started to kind of get a better understanding of, like, the kind of research that's been put in mental illness. I started to really get a better understanding of um, how, for so many years, you know, it, it's, it's so much of mental illness has been treated more like a punchline than actually an actual problem. You know? Right. And uh, they particularly noted, there was this one textbook I had. That interesting. I couldn't find any textbook that really fit my course except for this... This textbook that was written by a man, I forget his name, but it was written by a man who worked as a professor at the University of Leeds, I guess in Scotland, or is that England? England, England, I believe. Yeah. And um, it was interesting, and that book was very much an English book. I mean, it had, in fact, even the spellings of, like, theater and, like, uh, some other spellings were spelled like like Old English, you know. But they talk a lot about American media in this book. and. that particular author really had like a thing against Jim Carrey, <laughs> and uh the movie "Me, Myself, and Irene," which and as I watched that movie, I mean, uh, I have to admit, I've never been a big Jim Carrey fan, but I really didn't find myself laughing at all. Now, I, I'm I'm I've been guilty of laughing at you know the so-called lunatic kind of frenzy or funniness that's in the movies and that sort of thing. I'm guilty of that too, but but. The whole idea in 1999 of like laughing at somebody with multiple personality disorders, to me, was like so unoriginal and really kind of um, insulting. You know, appalling. I mean, it was. It maybe was funny when I was maybe in 1976, you know, but in, in 1999, it was just not funny anymore. And um, so, it, that that really kind of hit home with me. And, and what was interesting though was that I showed that that movie to my class. And they actually, ended up laughing themselves <laughs> throughout most of the movie, and I was just kind of sitting there like, "Oh my god!" But,
3: yeah. and we'll but I,
4: had like, to, I, I understood why. But
3: I mean, we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more about this.
5: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
6: Common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders.
0: There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about.
3: Welcome back, everyone. To One hour at a time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Tom Davis, and we're talking about um, multi-generational mental illness and substance use disorders, and um, and how we need to talk about that and be more open and um, kind about um, people who have these brain diseases. In our last segment, Tom was sharing a little bit about what prompted him to develop uh, a course. Um, at Farley Dickinson around mental health issues in the media and we're all certainly aware as, as he was talking about um, me, myself and Irene which is kind of trying to take multi-personality disorders and make comedy into it but you know we often see especially around Halloween that most of the um, villains in Halloween movies are portrayed as people that might have a mental illness and are, or um, you know when we, we see somebody in the in the media who has a substance use disorder, I mean, it's pretty stereotypical in terms of um, what happens to them. And, uh, you know, they always end up overdosing or they end up killing somebody as a result of their their addiction. And the same thing with the mental illness. So um, it's really important that we begin to see that people that have these brain diseases often recover and lead very um, productive lives. And and Tom, can you just um begin to talk to us a little bit about what your family experience has been too
4: right well that was a uh, was really um that's i mean if there was a, there was a, i guess there were certain sparks to the uh book but there was probably um if there was any kind of um thing that kind of kept the kept the thing going as far as the research is concerned basically just discovering um different levels of my family and how they were affected and um I mean, to sum up in a few words basically uh my um my mother was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder she was not diagnosed until she was sixty um sixty one years old um, and uh she um you know she passed away in two thousand and three um, you know her body was basically done um physically I mean, it had been done mentally for a while but mental, the mental issues were basically coupled with the physical issues and led to deterioration on both ends. Um, uh, my grandfather was an undiagnosed person who I believe who was, um, you also had the symptoms of obsessive compulsive, severe obsessive compulsive disorder who, uh, lived a life pretty much like my mother did and, and very much similar, very similar to what we all know. We've all learned about Howard Hughes. Um, and, uh, who was a desperately afraid of germs, took showers all the time, washed his hands until they were red and flaky. Um, So, you know, and also basically got to a point where all the symptoms overwhelmed him and died in squalor. You know, I think he was a rich man, but there were rodents that found in his house, that sort of thing. I'm talking about Howard Hughes. But my grandfather was kind of in a similar place uh married but lived in a nice house but still living in a very kind of uh, decadent, not decadent way but basically in a bad way. Um his father committed suicide in um which my great grandfather committed suicide in nineteen thirty three when he was I believe sixty one years old. Um and uh he uh he basically he gassed himself. He uh he gassed himself in a, uh, in a house in Heightstown, New Jersey. Um and he in an obsessive way made sure that the deal would be done by plugging the holes and the cracks in his, uh, his house with, um, cotton and paper. Um, and his, his mother and his brother, so his mother would be my great, great grandmother, um, the, um, also gassed herself. Um, never actually ruled a suicide, but had all the symptoms of it. Um, she was actually with her other son, in a house in Elizabeth, New Jersey, um, when they were in a room with the door closed and gas coming from a kitchen from a stove on a warm day, um, gas gas from the kitchen stove pouring into um, their house, I mean into into their bedroom, killing herself, her other son, and the dog. Um, This was blasted across the uh, front page of the Elizabeth Daily Journal on October 4th, 1928.
3: Um, Do you know what caused it? What, do you know what led up to that,
4: or right well, it was interesting i mean the unfortunate thing about fortunate but the very kind of um, compelling but also challenging thing to this was but very interesting and rewarding in, in the end what, um was just basically trying to find out like what happened beforehand and I mean there were a lot of things that were happening in this family um, that were contrary to a lot of things that I had heard about this family um, but, but through research and everything, I, I you know, it, it, it's understandable that things happened the way they did because, first of all, I would heard that for long, all my life, that my family was, like, rich and, you know, people had owned horses and all this stuff. Well, no, that wasn't actually the case. Actually, they were relatively poor or maybe lower middle class, you know. Um, they weren't homeless necessarily, although, you know, one was actually apparently homeless. That, was, that would be my great-uncle or my great-grandfather's brother who had basically killed himself with his, with my great great grandmother. Um um uh, the my um Elias Cranewine was my great great grandfather, was married to this great great grandmother who killed herself. Um he was a Civil War veteran who apparently had from my research actually did have big dreams and he did actually come from a family, more of an extended family that that did actually have money and had power in Elizabeth, New Jersey, um the Winans family, which is my mother's maiden name, um were among like the Cranes, um the found, among the founding families of Elizabeth, New Jersey. And the Cranes, by the way, that would be the family of Stephen Crane, the um the uh the, the author of Red Badger Courage, who was buried in the same cemetery as my family in Hillside just over the borders from Elizabeth. And uh, they um <clears throat> my my there's actually believe really that maybe we're actually related and um Elias Cranewin's is a civil war veteran this middleman Crane, um, who um, who actually married when his I found out that when his wife Lydia was pregnant um, with with their first child, who would be Frederick, who and Frederick and Lydia were the ones who killed themselves on October fourth, nineteen twenty-eight. Um, they were married, I think, in eighteen sixty-seven, and from there, I mean. He apparently had to, you know, i i got some information about the, his civil war records and apparently he had some wounds that may have ultimately led to him being uh a or basically confined to a wheelchair um he this was Elias wanted he was a he was a house painter essentially um he was not a kind of wealthy man and um the people, the people, the, his children were not apparently wealthy either. And Frederick, the firstborn, appeared to have not a steady job at all. The only steady job he really had was working for his dad, helping him paint and or holding, helping him put up wallpaper. Um, and, uh, and my great grandfather was the younger brother. His name was um, Edward. He actually tried to make a go of it. He was actually trying to make money, but he never really seemed to make money on a steady basis, and he was moving all over the place. Eventually, so you had this kind of like. It's the cataclysmic kind of effect where you had a a a patriarch who was basically a civil war veteran who may have been suffering from wounds from the war who was who was suffering still and not making go of it in his own life um living in basically um apartments with um immigrants you know he was had immigrants as neighbors and you know very kind of like you know sec- secluded part of society you know you had, you had his oldest son who couldn't find a job. You had his his younger son who um, had uh, um, had issues himself but apparently uh, was trying to make a go of it but, but couldn't succeed. His own wife appeared to have some issues. Um, she actually came from a family of wealth, but now uh, she's living in some kind of lower middle class. And also they also had a daughter who died young at age 14, I believe. Um, that would be uh, Elias' oldest daughter, I believe. Or youngest daughter, I'm sorry. So... All that was happening, and then Elias died. I mean, he was like 60 years, but he died of a heart attack. So that left essentially Frederick. Frederick was basically somebody from my understanding was basically hanging out at the train station. He got married, and he basically then abandoned his family. Essentially, couldn't find a job, that sort of thing, and basically hanging out at the Elizabeth train station. Um, and one of the one of the things I got was I like, actually connected with um, that part of the family, which had actually. Happened when, she, when he had married. Um, he and his wife had a couple of kids, three, three kids, I believe. And uh, she couldn't take it anymore, so she moved the family out to Los Angeles in 1915, I believe. And, uh, and then the rest of his life, Frederick and Lydia lived in an apartment, essentially, in, or you know, a duplex, essentially, and it was a very small one until 1928.
3: So. So there's there's been a long history of um, kind of living on the fringe or on the margin. For this family
4: right yeah and um i mean Ed, Ed, edward um i know it's kind of confusing but edward would be my great-grandfather and frederick's brother he tried to make a go of it up in, right until the depression but he was also kind known as a guy who would maybe spend money he didn't have mm. which was kind of contrary to my grandfather his son who would never spend money but he uh he rented a house in Bayhead. New Jersey, which is Jersey Shore. I mean, that, that, during the 1920s and into the Great Depression, I mean, you had to basically have money in order to rent a house in Bayhead, and even then. And um, it kind of gave everybody the feeling like they were living a good life when actually they weren't. He was losing a lot of money, lost a lot of money in the stock market, from what I understand. Um, couldn't get his insurance business to make a go of it, basically. And um, one day he told, I mean, and then his wife suffered a stroke. One day he told my grandfather, Richard, or Dick, as he called himself, um, that uh, he was um, to come home on a Wednesday. Uh, You're know, supposed to basically go to Bayhead or something like that on a weekend. He told him not to come back till Wednesday at a certain time as a way of maybe kind of show that he, maybe he was actually planning something out. Mm-hmm. But my grandfather did come home and smell gas. Um, it was across the street from the Petty School, which is a private school in Heightstown, New Jersey. So when we got the head the headmaster where my grandfather went to school, and they checked it out and they found my grandfather sitting there with his front of the stove with his head down and glasses half down so,
3: so that's really a family pattern i mean the same yeah. type of um, um the gas is almost the it's it keeps repeating itself right. Um, and it was only,
4: it was only five, years, it was only five years after the other one, so right. I might you
3: know. right. So um, we'll be back after this next commercial, and um, we'll be talking more about intergenerational mental illness and substance use disorders with Tom Davis.
5: Step into a healthier You,
0: Voice America, Health and Wellness. What if you could get the information that you've always needed from a good friend? If you don't know her already, you'll want to meet Janet Zapala. Janet is an accomplished radio and television personality who now brings her experience and a wealth of guests to voiceamerica.com. We'll feature discussions about food and drink, nutrition, lifestyles, and fitness, just to name a few. We'll talk about current events and what you want to hear about, too. The show is called Food for Thought. Tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
6: Common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, family centered recovery for co occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
5: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
3: host today and our guest is Tom Davis who's written um, a memoir called A Legacy of Madness and Tom can um, in our previous segment you were really talking about how um, your family um, was really kind of trying to um, make ends meet they were kind of living on the fringe but um, you've also had some family members that were somewhat successful your, your grandfather for one who was um, you know, was the personnel manager at Greystone? Maybe you could kind of paint for us the how how the illnesses have kind of affected your generation. Maybe you could tell us how it all relates.
4: Right. I think I think there's always been a feeling like whether it's that generation or my generation, there's a feeling like there, there's never that you know that there's never there's never enough uh, that the uh, there's a certain like kind of like perfectionist kind of attitude. You know, my my grand my grandfather, I mentioned I mentioned earlier, was personnel director at Greystone Psychiatric Hospital, ironically, uh for thirty years, from 1949 and 1979. And uh he um I I as far as like you know, symptoms and how they might have affected and how how you know, when it really became apparent to me, um I mean, it really started to show first with my mother to me when I was back in the '70s, and then then my grandfather, particularly when my uh, grandmother died, 1976. I oh, 1975. So, um, and once once I started to do research, I really started to find out that my grandfather was did actually really show this, so I mean, to, the severe obsessive compulsive. I to symptoms. He used to really show, like I think, like maybe three, four, five showers a day, and of course, you, and for a while he basically kind of numbed himself by like drinking too much um that was that was very evident when we went on a Florida trip in 1976 and we brought him along and I mean he was you know very abusive with waitresses and one time we found him running around um literally like going out for a jog with his full suit on and stuff like that so uh, my mother was like a, was a pretty heavy drinker drinker and she used to um do this thing where she repeated over and over again and um, she would wash her hands until they were red and shaky, like my grandfather would. And so this was kind of like my exposure to, to the world, you know, for much of my very early years to my later on years. I mean, it was this is what I was seeing? And in a lot of ways it was—it was, it was actually kind of like a normal. It was—it was, it was a, a way. Didn't seem to be anything wrong with that because it wasn't really hurting anybody. Um, it was hurting people because in one sense because it would drive my father crazy himself, but. But there always seemed to be a way of like kinda of patching things up. So I when I started to have symptoms that were affecting me, you know, I mean I used to have fear of germs too myself when I was a kid and I used to kinda of almost like kinda of shake myself out of it sometimes like saying basically, I cannot be my mother, I can't be my grandfather. Yeah. You know, and then and then but then in the eighties, um, when I started you know, you start to get become a teenager, start to of worry about your looks, that's when really like the eating disorders really started to kind of rear their ugly head and uh and when I was in high school, I used to really uh, starve myself. I was this was probably the first sport I was ever good at. Was cross country running. I ran for Pleasant Borough High School in New Jersey, and I uh, I um, would basically starve myself before meets. You know, literally, I'd have my, uh, my 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 hands dragging on the floor out know, of meat because I would basically starve myself. I would I would only eat Gatorade. I use the powder. I'd actually eat the powder. I was afraid to put water in myself. For a while, I really kind of developed – that was when I started to develop fears about, like, what I was putting in my body. And – but I'd often kind of like try to shake myself out of it in a way because my – I was kind of mentally – I was like, stop it, get over it, that sort of thing. And I'd think about my grandfather and my mother, and I started to make those connections. And when it really kind of took hold was in college, um, and uh, it, was a, it was a breakup, and I lost about 60 pounds. I was down about high 120s, I think it was um, as far as weight, as far as, uh, weight and, uh, about six foot two. So, you know, I mean, you're getting into like, you know, very slim basketball player territory, you know, uh, or beyond. So, you know, when that happened, that's when really, it was kind of like, uh, I guess you could say almost like a, more like cry for help really kind of like a rude awakening for me that there was something going on here. And I would think about my grandfather, I would think about my mother and then, and then it wasn't so easily, easy to dismiss them anymore and the symptoms they went through. So, um, you yeah, know, so that, that, that weight that on me. And it's been weighing on me ever really ever since. And it's been weighing on me as far as, as even even being a parent when I see, like, symptoms maybe, like, that have risen in my own children. My oldest my son, like, dealt with issues when he was first born in 1998. Um, he actually experienced what they call sensory integration disorder where it's like a certain hypersensitivity and he's, a, he's been a certain, like, certain touches, to certain smells, certain, like, stressful situations would actually make him blow up. Um, so, yeah, it's probably been kind of weighing on my mind and my generation and in the next generation ever since. So.
3: Was it something that your family talked about? I mean, was were the, the illness, the, the family illnesses from one generation to the other, was that part of your family for, um, folklore or... Were these all secrets that you all had to
4: uncover? Unfortunately, it was, not, it was something we did never ever talk about, um, and we didn't talk about it until 1998. We didn't. Um, I mean, there would be maybe be hints there and here and there. And my my father, we would, I would hear my father yelling at my mother. I would hear the fights they had. I would. I mean, I used to just as I write my book, I would write, just kind of wish they would just go to sleep or just make up and go to sleep. I mean, I never really. What, what really should have been happening was that, you know, maybe she should have not care, but, you know, my mother was very stubborn and she wouldn't have thought it gone for it. But, but I felt as though, um, you know, there was a kind of like a sweeping under the rug, you know, about mm-hmm. what was going on. And, um, you know, these issues were just kind of like laid to waste until they got to a point where they just got to be uncontrollable. Um, and my uh, my mother went through a, had a bladder operation in 1998. I well, took it really very kind of like hard and like started to really worry about herself like, more than ever, and repeating and everything else. And it was, it just, it just, um, so,
3: anyway, um, so, so for, for you, um, what has writing this memoir done for you?
4: It's really, I mean, writing to me has always been like, um, It's really been like my form my own therapy, like an outlet, like another arm. Um, you know, I mean, it, I didn't really start writing full force until like until nineteen, sorry, two thousand three, when my mother died. But you know, this, I wrote the column, as you mentioned, for the Bergen Record, like Bergen County uh, called Coping. And uh, you know, it gave me that kind of feeling of like not being alone. You know, like feeling like there's a connection out there with other people. I mean, it's like almost like I guess like a kind of a group therapy therapy kind of situation. We don't feel like you're alone, but it's better than group therapy because you feel like you can almost kind of control the saying what you're saying and what's being said, and you know, you and then and you can you get the feedback that you that, that you want, which can be either a positive or negative, you know, about what you say, you know, and 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 in an intelligent way, you know. You know, I've been to some group therapy sessions where I just people yelling at each other and people dominating the time and that sort of thing. I never felt that was a constructive atmosphere. And so, um, so I feel like, you know, it, it's it's giving me that kind of extension of of um of a voice, you know, for myself, not just for other people that I never had before. So.
3: So um, you, you kind of mentioned um, in the book too about how the um, healthcare system really didn't have much um, to offer your family. Sorry, say that again. Mental health, the mental health system,
4: right? How, how it's how it's not helped our family, or how it's yeah,
3: yeah,
4: yeah. Well, it's it's um, I still feel a lot of ways it's still not helping our family because uh, you know as we deal with issues as we get older, it's. You know, I mean, we see psychiatrists, that sort of thing. We hear about the you know, parity legislation that's supposed to actually make it as easy to get a doctor or a copay with psychiatrists as it is like a like a general practitioner or something, but it's not. Because a lot of psychiatrists don't do benefits, and a lot of good ones, all the bad, all the good ones wouldn't do it anyway because you know, they don't want they don't want to deal with the uh, <clears throat> the money and everything. So they. Uh, So, I mean, I just don't think there's, like, parity in terms of, like, mental health care. Um, But, you know, and I still hear stories about certain hospitals, you know, where my mother was taking care of certain places, and I hear still that things really haven't gotten much better since she was there. You know, a lot of ways, you you know, a lot of the reporting that was done on... The, the decrepit conditions of certain facilities back in the 60s and the 70s that basically helped lead to, like, revolution, I guess you could say, in mental health care. I mean, it, the problem was when all that happened, I mean, they got rid of the, the big asylums or just threw people away. And I mean, it was, and they started, but then instead of, like, having some sort of safety net for them to go to, they just started throwing them into the street, you know? And that's where a lot of people think the homeless situation is actually really kind of it's genesis, you know? Right. Um, So... And in a lot of ways just keeps continuing, especially when you deal with like rough economy and like, you, you know a lot of money, a lot of money is going into the system of mental health care and that sort of thing. Uh, so it's um, you know you still you still hear the stories about like my 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 mother was station was was uh, a patient at Inquestic Asuric Hospital down near Hamden in New Jersey, and I mean you know, everything smelled like urine. She had a sex offender who was living like one door away or one one room away um, who was writing notes that were just full of some disgusting things. Um, I mean, you hear, you hear, you know, you, you know, I mean, she had to write the name on our clothes because they were getting stolen. I mean, stuff like that. Was, and, but you hear that was like, what, 10, 12 years ago and that, it hasn't really gotten any better from what I understand. So, as some ways it has gotten better but not elsewhere.
3: Um, well, you know, I think you're right. In some ways it has gotten better and other ways it hasn't. And I think the need to advocate for health benefits all kinds of health benefits, but especially for um, brain diseases. Um, I'm leery of saying behavioral health because I think that somehow diminishes that these are brain diseases and this is part of the body. It's not about your behavior. It's about something that's cellular in your brain. And I think when we begin to call it behavioral health, we then kind of make it easy for people to say, to to kind of separate the body from the brain. Uh So. Um, I think there's a lot we need to do to advocate and to, um, you know, um, make sure that people are treated fairly. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more with Tom Davis.
5: Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness.
7: Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacey Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacey Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacey's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacey Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel.
6: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
5: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness you're
2: listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
3: Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is Tom Davis who has written a memoir called A Legacy of Madness and um, you know at the end of our last segment we were talking about the need to advocate for um, for effective treatment for people that have brain diseases be it um, mental illness or substance use disorders and um, certainly Tom your memoir gives a voice to people who, who other people who have had this multi-generational history of mental illness and that um, you know it it doesn't end with one generation. Whether you are affected or not, you're still affected by the, the people that parented you or, or whatever. And I think that it's so important for us to begin to look at this conceptually and, um, and not in isolation. So um, I thank you for writing the book, because I think it's um, really important to have that discussion. Where do you think we go from here in terms of our health care and what needs to happen?
4: We have to make it a priority. We have to basically start to really kind of realize that this really is really something that kind of affects so many people in so many different ways. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people talk about how, you know, I mean, it's interesting because actually the crime rates and everything, it's actually a small percentage of people who actually commit crimes or have mental illness. But um, but many people who commit, many people who are mentally ill do commit crimes. So you know, they say the Los Angeles County Jail is actually the largest mental health facility in the um um in, in in the country is what they say. It's I guess it's all being most sarcastic but it's true. I mean that's where more than people are housed anywhere. So you know what you know, what um what can be done about that? I mean the fact the fact of the matter is that maybe we just really start to have to realize that the priority is the short, it's unfortunate now it's just a bad economy, you know, that they can't put more money into these systems and then they can't or they could, but maybe they just need to kind of reevaluate certain priorities, like maybe a certain amount. Maybe maybe it may come down to maybe raising taxes or whatever, maybe, you know, spending money in different ways or something, because it affects the jail systems, it affects the school systems, it affects, you know, the hospitals, um, it affects health care. So, you know, it affects people in different ways.
3: As we we defunded mental health hospitals, we um, greatly funded prisons so it's almost like we, we did a cost shifting from okay um helping human services we're not going to give the money to health and human services to treat people we're going to give the money to the prison system so we can warehouse them and get them away from society because it's not politically correct anymore to put them in a, in a state hospital on, on a hill in the middle of nowhere because now you know we have, we've evolved beyond that so now we'll just put them in a prison.
4: Right. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's almost like the kind of, um, that's become the safety net is prison. <laughs>
3: yeah. I mean, unfortunately, even, even for people that have substance use disorders, that's where you go for treatment. Yeah, right.
4: Exactly. And they do have places where you get treatment in those places, but it's not exactly like, um, you know, it's not exactly a right environment for, you know, becoming a better person so, or becoming like, are helping them manage these issues. So.
3: Well, what do you think? Um, when you look to the future, do you think um there's any way to kind of advocate and do some consciousness raising so that people with mental illness and substance use disorders are are portrayed better in the media? Or do you think there's always going to be this uh, you, me, and Irene? And
4: um, yeah, <laughs> all the, <you> know, <laughs> exactly. I, I think it's, yeah. and all that the I, I I think that the, um, I mean, that's going to be a hard thing to erase. I think that we've made a lot of strides, so it's going to take time and everything. And, I mean, you know, it's interesting about, you know, our country is that a lot of times it takes, like, kind of a, a kick in the pants in order to get people to really kind of realize things. You know, I mean, I know that after Columbine happened, uh, you know, some of the discussion was made about, you know, how one of the one of the shooters was actually, like, you know, was showing symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder. So, um, you know, so like, like it's that kind of old Springsteen thing. It's more than just to put somebody to gun somebody's hand, and hopefully, like there will be a time when people will say, "Okay, well, you know, we really got to I mean, they are they are doing a lot of research now to find out like what causes these things, and they're they're making strides in that regard. You know, they're finding out that like some some of these, you know, um, illnesses and everything might be like kind of correlated and everything. But um, so I think it's gonna be a, a long evolutionary process. I don't think it's it's, um, you know, people still feel uncomfortable around somebody who's mentally ill. Many people do. So it's going it to some time, you know. Time, I'm hopeful, hopefully, heal all wounds, right?
3: So, for your family, will your generation change your family history?
4: Would, would, or, would, we, or, would, would we change would our family?
3: You, would, would your generation kind of break the cycle? That's the whole plan here, you know, is yeah. that we can
4: we can we can address these issues early, you know, I don't know if we're going to actually break a cycle of mental illness, but we're going to break a cycle of self destruction is what I'm yeah. hoping you know that um in my my generation, we've had some self destruction my own my own personal self destruction, but you know we're hoping that like you know we can find a way to kind of you know end this kind of destructive behavior that's happened in previous generations so that people can kind of like you know better but to a better understanding you know better. And, and therapy and, and early intervention.
3: Um, how can people get a Legacy of Madness, and how can they reach you?
4: Well, let's see. They can actually check out my website at legacyofmadness.com. So it's just like a sounds there's no other. It's just www.legacyofmadness.com. And um, I have ways you can purchase it on the website, and you can actually buy it. Some Barnes & Nobles have it on the shelves, others don't, um, but you can get it through barnesandnoble.com, you can get it through amazon.com, you can get it through Walmart, I'm not sure if it's on the shelves at Walmart, but it's definitely available on the website. Um, Hazelden has his own website, um, HazeldenPublishing.com, I believe, um, and, um, you know, it's at, it's at a bunch of bookstores, too, so, you know... It's i will be doing that. a signing, actually, at a Columbia Bookstore in New York City uh, next on uh, October 20th at, uh, at 6 p.m. Um, that's up in, by 116th Street in side Heights by Columbia University. So I'll be doing other signings, too. I'll be doing a signing in Delaware um, it's on the Sunday um, at Browse About Books um, at um, 5 p.m. or later, 5 or 6 p.m.
3: And then, uh, and
4: then I'll be doing a few other signings, too, so... And how can people reach you? They can also email me at uh T S in and Tom, Dog, Dog It's tddink at Hotmail dot com. They can also contact me at Patch, which is Tom dot Davis at patch dot com. And uh yeah, I'd be happy to, t- happy to talk and you know you know, maybe share thoughts.
3: <laughs> do you so. have another book in mind? I'm sorry? Or is this do you have another book in mind on this subject or is is this the
4: I actually from. have like books I've written and I've written along the way and everything. I, I, did, I had a Carter Center fellowship and was in Carter, I forgot to mention that. in Carter actually endorsed the book. She's a former first lady. Yep. And uh she uh, I developed a relationship with her, you know, like about seven or eight years ago seven years ago where she actually I got a fellowship after I started about mental health issues. Um got a fellowship that basically uh you know, we write well we write more about mental health issues and she gives you a slip and and I developed a good relationship with her so she, um so during that course during that period i actually I actually followed some couple people who um who went through the mental health system that Bergen county was developing at the time and there were two people who went through the jails who were actually jailed people were in jail, but they went through this mental health system and they kept actually essentially screwing up and ending back up in jail and some and and, and getting funky out of this mental health program that was available in Bergen county so <laughs> So there was kind of like cycle of dependency that was going on. I actually wrote about 270 pages of that. So I was actually thinking about revisiting that book. Um, You know, there's other things I've had in mind, too, but that was one of them I've had in mind. So, yeah, definitely want to revisit this issue, you know.
3: So it sounds like you're really committed to advocating for people with mental illness.
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely Mm -hmm. want to keep, keep the idea that there's a voice out there and there's a voice for the voiceless, you know.
3: Well, thank you so much for being our guest today and for sharing your your, your journey. And, um, thank you. and thank you so much for being a voice because um, we certainly need him.
4: I appreciate that, and um, you know, I uh, thank you for having me.
3: You're entirely welcome. Have a great week, everybody.